If Gary is the regular movie, I'm the DVD extras. I'm the, the director's commentary. I'm going to fill in a few of the gaps, uh, maybe give a little overall context that we might otherwise miss out on. So I'm, I'm not dumb. I'm not going to try to f- do what Gary does. I'll uh, kind of do what I do, which is kind of look at some of the fundamentals a little bit, maybe apply a little bit of context to that. So uh, there's, take notes. There's a little set of notes. If you're not a note taker, there's an outline. You can doodle on or do whatever you want with that. Um, but follow along as best you can, because I think what we're doing today is a great way to set up and kind of enrich a little bit of the teaching that Gary's given us out of Second Peter as we go through things. If you've been with us, oh, excuse me. See, this is why Gary has the regular job. If you are a child or third through third grade or enjoy junior church, would like to go down to junior church, now would be an excellent time to go down and do that. So if you're working with those kids, if you're one of those kids, or if you'd like to be one of those kids, now would be the time to head downstairs and enjoy junior church. It's kind of fun to watch, actually. Good stuff. Okay, back to... uh, Back to what's going on here. Gary's been teaching us that in Second Peter, the first chapter, there's eight qualities of a healthy spiritual life. And he's been going through each quality one by one. I think we've done the first two or three so far. And when he comes back, we'll continue on to those eight qualities. And I, what I want to talk about is kind of look at those eight qualities together today as one thing. And interestingly, I guess when I'm looking at this is uh, I want to talk about how we finish things about endings, and just think about how we end things. There's something that comes up to my mind a lot, and as I'm uh, studying this, and that's where I kind of got led, I got actually led to the end of Second Peter. So I'll be speaking on the very end of Second uh, Peter, the entire book, the last two verses, really focusing on just the last verse. And I think that's a great way to summarize a little bit of what's going on in Second Peter, because Simon Peter's a pretty good author, and he summarizes things at the end. But I've been thinking a lot about kind of, it's a part of my job almost to think about legacy, to think about impact, to think about what do we leave behind, and to be a little bit concerned about what happens when we leave. Not physically as, as in death, but as in things change and things end. Ministries start, ministries end, and what do we leave behind when things end? Because, friends and neighbors, every human institution is going to end, Right? We're, this church won't be here, maybe it will be a thousand years from now, but I mean, ministries come and go. There's a, there was a church at Philippi. Okay? They wrote letters to it, a very vital Christian church. Now, while I'm sure there's Christians living in Philippi, the church that we read about in the Bible is no longer there. The Roman Empire was a massive empire that's lifespan was twice as long as we've been around as a country. The Roman Empire is fundamentally gone. So what do we leave behind? What's our legacy? And I think it's something that's good to be concerned about uh, because it's, it's ending well is important. We want to end things well. I have this image, and this is totally outside the Bible, but this idea when, you, when we pass on and head to heaven when we're glorified that we kind of come thundering down like this big giant thoroughfare in heaven and we're on a horse and like we have a battle flag or a sword or something. We come riding, everybody cheers and you come... You know, there's great rejoicing as you enter heaven. And less glorious than that, I have this image that there's also like a big reception. Kind of like, you know, there's like, you know, everybody's kind of welcoming and greeting each other. And you walk into the reception and, 
you know, like the big shots, like Moses, he's kind of got security around him. And he's kind of like, whoa, Moses, man, look at that. It's Moses over there. Hey, Noah. And you're kind of talking to people. Thomas, how's it going? Did I do okay, Thomas? And Thomas says, I doubt it. But, you know, you, you go along, you, you do the, you're kind of meeting all these people in heaven. And you, I have this feeling like I want to have something to say to Paul. I, I want to be able to, to have something to say. And what I'm talking about is in the Bible, if you want to get doctrinal, it's called the Bema Judgment. There's two judgments. There's one on your salvation. And if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to worry about that one. That one's done with. That's what you're in. Okay? You're not going to have to worry. But there's one called the Bema judgment. And that's where they look at your works. Kind of like you'll pull out, again, not in the Bible this way, but I have this image like you pull out your portfolio of all the things you've done in your life. And some of it's going to be important and it's going to be recorded. And some of it's going to be worthless. I'm just guessing here, but the time I spend watching football and sports, eh, probably not that worthwhile right? Could have done something different. Maybe the time I spent with someone watching football, that might have been important because I might have had some, you know, important conversations there. So looking forward at what the legacy is going to be of my life is something that I find motivating for me right now. At my job, I worry about things I might do that are leaving landmines behind for my successor, right? I don't want to have my successor come into my job and go, oh my gosh, what was this guy thinking? Because that's a bad thing. As a church, I think about what's our lasting impact on our community? As a family, what's our impact on the city of Ephrata, on this, this area? As a Christian organization, what, what are we doing around the world? What's going to be our lasting legacy? What's going to last? What's vital? And that, to me, is the definition of finishing things well. You want to finish successfully. You don't want to finish poorly. And so there's a lot of what I'm talking about today is the contrast between finishing well and finishing poorly. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through things. The problem is, as humans, a lot of us don't finish well. It seems like what we remember about things are people that did not finish well, people that finished poorly. And, you know, a really good example of this and I, I really, I'm, I'm not going to tease a certain college because they're having a much better season than my college is having. But there is a Northwest school that uses a cat as its, its, its whatever motto. And historically speaking, this college has a tendency to, in football, not finish well. They'll be ahead going into the fourth quarter, and they'll, we'll, we'll call them the Panthers, okay? We'll just say the Panthers. And it's a phrase people use to say to Panther means to not finish well, to like be on the verge of victory and like find a way to lose. And alumni from that school, they kind of chalk it up to that's just what happens. That's just to panther. And it gets used a lot. So I didn't want to show you any panthering today because, again, they're having a much better season right now. But I do have some videos, sports metaphors, of people that finished poorly. So if Sue would just hit that, you don't need to hit the lights. It's not that funny, but... Just kind of watch some of this and think about finishing poorly. There's no sound. That was just last weekend. Michigan had it all wrapped up. All they had to do was punt the ball. We are making fun of the French today, though.
He thinks he just crossed the goal line. I'm going to get up and thump my chest a little bit. Cheer for me, cheer for me. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> the fact that it's Oregon, there's a little extra icing on the cake. And of course, make it worse, go help the guy up, right? Give him a hug. Finishing poorly. We, I won't say most, but there's a lot of people that finish poorly. As we get older, and it's already happened to me, um, we get very susceptible to the get off my lawn, you kids, kind of feeling that things are worse today than they were in our youth. And, we, and it, I think it's men in particular. I can't speak to the, the women. But there's a grumpy old man syndrome, right? You see grumpy old men. They get lines in their face. They sit around with other grumpy old men, and they curse at what's going on today. And that's not a very healthy thing. And that, to me, is a, a sign of finishing poorly. Uh, there's groups in Ephrata that they have coffee together. And there's, there's groups that sit and they tease each other and they laugh and they talk about any number of things, but it's all, they're laughing with each other. And there's other groups that they, they sit around and this town stinks and this country stinks and the president stinks and everything stinks and they just sort of feed on each other, I think. And there's like, you walk in, there's like this black cloud over one table and it's just raining on that Greg Hewitt and I have talked many times about as we get older, we do not want to become grumpy old men. We want to be happy old men. Uh, there are great examples in this church of happy old men. And I, the one that Greg and I talk about, if you're old enough, you'd remember um, Paul Satry was just this man. As he got older, was always positive, was always affirming, was always supportive of young men in the church. And that was just a great thing to see that. So part of this maybe is an encouragement to you that if you're a, a younger person or younger at heart, not to finish as a grumpy old person. Uh, or if you're a young person, don't become grumpy early because there's a lot of people that I can talk about that don't have their driver's licenses yet that are just as hidebound, just as I don't want to change and don't make me learn something. And that's finishing poorly at a very early age. We want to finish things well. So the central question... If you take any lessons, I always start with the central question. You always answer the central question. I like to lay that all out for you. The central question today is, how do you finish well? That's a question I ask myself in the mirror. How do you finish well? And the answer is by continually growing or maturing, if you like another word. If you want to impress people at lunch today, use the theological term, and that is be sanctified. Sanctification is the theological term for maturing or growing in Jesus Christ. And uh, it's good to throw down a little bit of doctrine on people every now and then. The text we're going to answer this, or the text will answer the question, how do you finish well, is Second uh, Peter chapter 3 that Keevan read for us, uh, verses 17 and 18, but really focusing on 18. Let me read that. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, 
so that you are not carried away by the error of undisciplined men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning to study your word, we give thanks to you that we have it. We give thanks to you that we have a place to gather and that, Father, we have this time to learn and to worship you. Bless us this day, Father, with illumination from your Holy Spirit. Teach us by your Spirit today this passage. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So let's start here. Start with some fundamentals and review. Fundamentals are important if I keep the sports metaphor going today. Uh, Good teams practice fundamentals every day because they're fundamental. A fundamental for us is the phrase or the, the notion of salvation. If you've been here for any length of time, you should be able to do this with me. There are three parts to your salvation. There are three phases or three tenses to salvation. The first one, which happens on this side, say it with me, starts with J, justification, right? We are justified in the past. That happened. That's a one spot in time and space. That's when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We become justified at that point. Ephesians 2.8 is your scripture reference. You can look that up. And that is when we are saved or were saved from the penalty of sin. Once you accept Jesus Christ, sin has nothing on you. You will not be held accountable for your sin. That penalty, the punishment, was wiped away. Jesus Christ paid for it. Done, over with, took place in the past. Right now, we are being saved which is the word that starts with S, which we already mentioned, which is sanctification. This is the day-to-day thing. We're going to come back to that because that's what I'm talking about today. And we look forward to the future, which will be when we meet Jesus face-to-face, and that will be what starts with G, glorification. You guys are awesome. That's when we will be saved from the presence of sin. Now, justification and glorification are the bookends, and we kind of get that at the intuitive level, because we're not involved with those. We make a choice. Jesus Christ took away the penalty of sin. Gone. We're going to be brought to heaven, and we're not really too involved with that decision either. That's kind of already done on our behalf, and we're glorified, and there's no presence of sin, which I can't even imagine what that would be like, to have no presence of sin. But we kind of, okay, heaven, accepting Christ, yeah, we're good. It's the middle part that's kind of confusing to us, or at least to me. Sanctification when it is the process by which we get more mature and we can be saved from the power of sin. We have the ability to to not have sin have an influence over us. But I don't know about you, but I I struggle with that. I, I don't always succeed with getting out of the power of sin. It's right there with us, and it's our day-to-day existence, and that's tougher to understand. And it's the one that's, interestingly, we're involved with that. We have to work at that one a little bit. It's not God doing it all for us. We have to be involved with that. And that's what Second Peter, in the largest scope of things, that's what the book is all about. It's about this living without the power of sin over you. So let's take a look at Second Peter. And let's look at the context a little bit. The first one is just remember the author. Ooh, sorry. The author is Simon Peter. 
Uh, we're very, very sure about that. He wrote First Peter. He wrote Second Peter. He wrote First Peter with a scribe. He, like, dictated it to a guy. And so there's some style differences because the scribe's got to, like, get his little influence in there or something. And that's made some controversy in the past, but it's, it doesn't hold up. Simon Peter was the author of this. Uh, it was written when Simon Peter was a pretty old guy. Uh, it was written, if you look at things that are mentioned and things that aren't mentioned, you look, compare that to a timeline of what was going on at that time. Second Peter was written between 65 A.D. and 68 A.D., which would make Simon Peter pretty old. So Simon Peter's kind of thinking about how he's going to end and ending well as well. That's kind of part of the theme. There are two main themes, although I think there's a third one. The first one is kind of inside and outside. Simon Peter is worried about the impact or the, the dangers of uh, persecution from the outside on the church. So there's a lot um, in, in the Second Peter about standing up to outside forces that are attacking you. But he's also very concerned about inside forces and false teachers within the church. So there's kind of it's a, it's a defense kind of book. And so I kind of look at this as really one of the overall themes is Simon Peter is a pretty good shepherd. If you're in leadership of any kind, 1 Peter and 2 Peter are really good books because it's a great example of what a shepherd leader or shepherd elder, pastor teacher, that's what they do. They want to defend and protect the flock, and that's exactly what this letter is about. Um, it's sort of a how-to guide to stimulate people to grow and mature in Christ, and it's a little bit of uh, encouraging all of us to have uh, be alert. In that first line in uh, verse 17 there, be on guard. Be alert. Watch for false teaching. It is a general letter to all Christians. So it's not written to a specific church at a specific time and place. It was written to Christians at that time. So it's maybe, I want to say more applicable, but it's very applicable to us today because it's written to Christians who live in a world where we are beset with attacks against us on our doctrine, and uh, there are lots of false teachers out there. Okay? If you have access to the Internet, there's just about everything in the world possible you could find there. That's kind of daily living uh, to be sanctified. Gary has started with identifying eight qualities uh, in the first chapter of Second Peter that say these are qualities that help you progress or help you mature. And now would be a good time to kind of review those in your head. Can you do it? I had to look them up. But can you think those eight qualities? Faith is the first one. Nice job, Kevin. I actually wasn't looking for interaction. That, I like that. Let's, let's, faith is the first one. What's the second one? If I was you, I'd be cheating right now and looking it up, but that's what I would do. Moral excellence is number two. Third, knowledge. Fourth, self-control. Always a you know, popular one to talk about. Let's have self-control in every regard. Uh, the fifth one, perseverance. One of my favorite words. Perseverance comes up a lot. And the next... Godliness, then brotherly kindness, and the final one, love. That to me is interesting because they're also, they're not just, here's eight qualities, they progress. One leads to the next, right? This leads to this, leads to this. They start with faith and it ends with love. I find that interesting. You would kind of assume godliness would be the ending one, but it's not. It's the expression of godliness, which is love. And it's the important love. That's interesting to me. And the purpose of all that, the purpose of those eight things is to make us closer to Jesus Christ, to make us better, to make us not 
better in earthly terms, better in godly terms, to be more like Jesus Christ. That is the point of it all. That is what sanctification, maturing is, is to be more like Jesus Christ tomorrow than I am today, and definitely more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. On a day-to-day basis, we have ups and downs, right? We have good days and bad days. I was explaining before, this week started for us on Monday at the city. We had a death threat against uh, the former mayor, which was kind of exciting. You know, that's, you go through lockdown procedures, and you got police, and it involves some people at the county, and um, it was a, a mentally unbalanced individual, obviously, and uh, he was taken care of so we can get some help, and it was all no big deal. That was a down day, right? That's not how you want to start your Monday. Uh, then you have up days where you have somebody comes in, there's this great thing, and you get this little rejoicing time. Ups and downs happen all the time, but the idea is that if you're maturing and sanctifying, your ups and downs have an average that keeps going up in terms of closeness to Jesus Christ. So that the day when I was 14, I was saved and accepted Jesus, and whatever day I head north to heaven, I should be closer to Jesus on that last day. I should be closest than my whole life on that last day. Now, Day to day, I'm going to do ups and downs, but the the path, the graph, should average out to be an upward slope. To do that, it's in some ways very simple to explain, very hard to live out, but the first chapter of 2 Peter tells us that we have those eight qualities already. Jesus gives them to us. Our job is not to find them, it's to appropriate them. And so appropriation is the word that Gary's been using a lot, and we'll continue to use as we study that. You have those eight qualities. You need to appropriate them, which means you make a conscious choice, an act of the will that I'm going to focus on trying to persevere today. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to, what's godliness? I'm going to try to be more godly today. I'm going to try to represent Jesus Christ to my coworkers, to my friends, my family, whatever. I have to choose to do that, and that's the way it works in sanctification. God gives you the power, but you have to choose to use it. God gives you what you need, but you still have to be the one that chooses to do it. You're involved with your sanctification. And there's not a lot of things in the Christian faith and our walk of faith that I think work that way. A lot of them are, it's Jesus does it all. We don't deserve to be saved, but he loves us that much and saves us. But in terms of sanctification, he gives you the tools, you have to choose to use it. In Philippians, Paul talks about work out your salvation. That's a phrase he uses, and it's, that's exactly what we're talking about. He's talking about sanctification, and you work at it. And the word work is, means hard labor. It's not like you think about it. It's hard. You struggle with it on a day-to-day basis. In fact, work actually refers to mining that he used back in that time. You work at it. And it says God gives us these things in abundance. Now, abundant to me would mean like a full rack of ribs for dinner. That's abundant. But it's God's abundance. It's abundant according to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us in abundance, it says. That's the whole universe. So, to finish well, you've got to work at it. You've got to make some choices. You've got to choose to do that. That's the context of the verse we're talking about. So, let's hit... 2 Peter, verse 18. And there's 17 is kind of the don't do this, and 18 is the do this instead. And I like to focus on, in this case, I'm going to focus on 18 because there's, you know, one big important word. If you read Greek, which I don't, but if you study this stuff, the verb is the most important part of a sentence in Greek. And so it's usually the first word 
And when it's translated around, it sometimes gets a little different. But in this case, if you look at verse 18, there's one verb, and it's the most important one, and that verb is grow. But grow. He kind of says, don't get messed up. Be on your guards. You don't get carried away by the bad things. But grow instead. And the word grow is a typical, impossible to pronounce correctly, Greek word. But it means this. It's auxano, or something really close to that. If you have to say oxano too many times in the mirror, you look really funny when you do it. So I'm just doing it one time, and that was it. The word grow means to augment, increase, or become greater. Augment, increase, become greater. It's only used in reference to farming. That kind of makes sense, right? Growing plants. Children growing, maturing, getting bigger and better. And sanctification, inward maturity, growing in knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ is to grow. That's what he's talking about. The word is used about 25 times, a little less, depending on your translation. In the New Testament, it's split all over the place, so it's not like just in the Gospels or just in the letters. It's all over the place, and it's always used in this context, growing in maturity. It is, and this is the grammar nerd alert, a present tense imperative what that means. It means it's something that happens now and doesn't stop. So you don't do it once and you're done with it. It's something you do all the time, and it's a command. It's, it's, a, it's not a suggestion. It says, this is what you do. You grow. Um, one guy, I think, it, I don't remember who it was. One of those persons that is your passionate pursuit. To grow should be your passionate pursuit. Okay? There are people that have passions about all kinds of things, sports, whatever, This should be your passionate pursuit. I like to call that, that's a lifestyle. Your lifestyle should reflect a growing maturity in Jesus Christ or a growing closeness to the Lord Jesus. John Piper talks about grace and talks about growing in grace. And grace should be easy for us to remember. In fact, let's stop right now. Grab your bulletin, turn it over to the back. I'll wait. I'm an old teacher. I'm comfortable with silence. It's all good. On the back of your bulletins, we kind of spell out grace. G-R-A-C-E. They stand for things. That's our mission statement for the church. The G, grace, stands for grow in the knowledge and likeness of Christ. Wow, that almost goes right along with this verse, doesn't it? What a coincidence. Okay, we want to reach out to the community. We want to make sure I get these right. Adore Jesus and God, we want to connect with people in a meaningful way, and we want to equip people to use their gifts to go out and evangelize our community, have an impact our community. That's grace and grace point. That's how we got our name, and it always that's a fundamental come back to grace. John Piper's talking about grace, and John Piper was talking about this passage in particular, and he gives the image of a tree, a tree that has shallow roots and a tree that has growing roots. And he says, and I'm going to quote here, The antidote to deception and destruction is growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. The contrast, verse 17, is between on one hand a tree which does not grow, loses its stability in the earth, and is blown over by the wind of false teaching, and it dies. And on the other hand, verse 18, a tree which keeps its roots planted in God's grace and so grows, stays healthy and stable and never gets blown over. I hesitate to to argue with John Piper, but I don't know about the idea of the tree dying is such a good metaphor. 
that kind of confuses salvation and dying. Maybe that you think about it, if your tree doesn't grow, it gets blown over and is stunted and ugly. Don't be an ugly tree. Be the tree that grows, has good roots, stays, doesn't get blown over, that kind of thing. Um, because remember, when we're talking about sanctification, we're not talking about the judgment of our salvation. We're talking about the judgment of our works, right? Don't get, if I'm not a, if you're a bad person, but you're saved, you're going to heaven. You may have some things to atone for. You may have some works that are going to be judged harshly, but you're going to get in, as it were. If you are not saved, that should be your biggest worry right now is to get saved. And if you have questions about your salvation, I'll be around right after the service because that's the most important thing we could talk about today is whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But we're talking about today sanctification. You've already made the decision we want to finish our life well, finish successfully. The idea here is that you're never static. You always should be growing in knowledge, and it deals with your heart, okay? Grace, grow in grace, but it also deals with your head. Grow in knowledge. Heart, grace, knowledge, head. You want to grow in both. It's kind of a nice balance there. Look at some parallel passages to make sure that this kind of makes sense with things in the Old Testament. Like a lot of good things, if you go looking for things, you end up in the book of Jeremiah, at least I do. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, uh, the prophet is speaking, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on the knowledge and understanding, as shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. The word increased, same as the Greek word for grow. deals with sanctification, and not just in numbers, but in maturity. So it all fits there. A couple examples of growing. We're talking about this maturing. Um, this will not surprise you that one of them, well, if you think of really arrogant people, arrogant professions, um, surgeons, if you've ever been around surgeons, really big-time surgeons, they tend to be very arrogant. They tend to be arrogant and knowledgeable, which I'm, a, I'm comfortable with that. It's the, the arrogant and ignorant people are the ones you've got to watch out for. But there's these surgeons in London at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is a major center in London, and they, this goes chief of transplant surgery. I don't know a lot about transplant surgery other than success rates are pretty low. It's a very, um, comparatively speaking, a, a kind of a dangerous surgery. They have to go super fast because you're taking an organ from one, putting it into another, and that's got to happen quickly. And it takes a huge team of surgeons, nurses, technicians, anesthesiologists. I mean, it's a little room of tons of people, high pressure, and life is at stake. And they have to go fast. And the surgeon um, started the surgery on Saturday afternoon and finished Sunday morning. They worked all through the night on a transplant surgery. It was like 12 hours when they're in the operating theater. And he gets off work, the surgeon, this is about 10 years ago. And he goes home and does what, you know, cool people do, which is they turn on Formula One to relax. So he's watching the Formula One race. It's a car race. It's European stuff. In fact, 10 o'clock today. Formula One's at the United States Grand Prix. I recommend you watch it. Here's why. The surgeon's watching the race. He sees a pit stop. And then these cars look like little spaceships on wheels, right? They come roaring. They're at 200 miles an hour. They go into the pit lane at like 60 miles an hour, which looks like it's slow on TV. But 60, that's like standing next to the freeway, right? The car comes, 60 miles an hour, comes to a stop at exactly the right spot. This team of mechanics swarm the car. They replace all four wheels, put new wheels on, 
They clean the car off. They wipe the driver's visor. They put a new bottle of water in the car for the driver. They adjust the wings. They pull junk out of the radiator. They drop the car off the jacks, and the car goes roaring off again back to the race at 200 miles an hour. All of that takes place in about four seconds. In fact, four seconds is long. They would be, the commentators on TV be like, oh, four seconds, that's quite slow. They frequently do it in less than three. Well, the surgeon's watching this and goes, huh, these guys are a whole bunch of people in a small spot doing something that has life safety implications, right? You don't get the wheel on, right? Somebody crashes and can lose their life. And they did it all in three seconds. My team can learn from you. So he goes back on Monday morning, he calls McLaren International and says, hey, I need your mechanics to come up to the hospital. So this group of what I would consider some of the most arrogant people on the planet are going to listen to a bunch of mechanics. Now, these guys were smart, arrogant people, and so they listened. And what mechanics do when they do all that stuff around the car, it's choreographed. Every step, literally every step, your left foot goes here, you pivot this way, you put your right hand here, you move the jack, and every step is rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. There's a checklist for every guy. It's fun to watch. If you watch the race today, you'll watch a pit stop. You can see it. They're usually slow-mo. It's so cool to watch. They took those principles that McLaren uses in the pit lane and applied it to surgeries and transplant surgeries. What happened? Their time dropped. They sped up the surgeries by like two hours, which time is life in that kind of situation. They doubled the survival rate in their hospital, and they um, cut errors like mistakes, which when they have your body open, you really don't want to hear about mistakes. They cut that by 50% as well. That's impressive. That's people maturing, in that case, their surgical technique. I'll give you a second example, which isn't so good. Watches. In 1966, who would have been, where would you get a good watch? What country would you go to? Switzerland. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Switzerland employed 67,000 people making watches, the old-fashioned way, quartz, little tiny springs, little tiny gears, really cool watches, right? Some crazy person came up with the idea of using a digital watch where you could have a, a little tiny microprocessor on a transistor, a little chip that would do the thing. And Switzerland, the watchmaking industry said, nah. And so a little company that no one had ever heard of called Seiko got the patent on digital watches in 1967. 1966, 67,000 people employed in Switzerland making watches. 1970, 50,000 of those 67,000, 50,000 of them, they're on the bricks. They're doing something else. They're not employed making watches anymore. 74% of an entire industry lost their jobs because they did not want to learn and grow because they do this. This is what we do. We're doing the same thing, and I'm not changing. And they were destroyed by it. The only thing that brought back a Swiss watches in the 80s, there was a thing called Swatch. I don't know if you remember that. They're goofy plastic watches. Didn't really help. So, two examples. One where they listened and learned and made some changes and got more mature. One where they did not and were destroyed. The idea here is that you're a lifelong learner. It's healthy to be a learner. It's healthy to be open to change, to grow in maturity in general, but it's definitely healthy spiritually to grow in maturity. Everything I read about brain research and Alzheimer's, what does it talk about? 
Be a lifelong learner. Be active with your brain. God has wired us at the root level of how our brain chemistry works, how our bodies work, that if we grow and mature, we stay healthier. That's a biblical principle that's right here in 2 Peter. If you grow and mature in your knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus, you are going to be a healthier, happier person, and you're going to finish well. It's a command. Henry Ironside says that the cure to all spiritual ills is continual growth. Having a bad time spiritually? Focus on trying to get closer to Jesus, get closer to people, be a better Christian, be a closer to Christ Christian, to be more Christ-like is going to fix that. There's some implications to this, though, I think. Look at verse 18 again. What do you see? What don't you see? What I don't see? I don't see qualifiers. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ until you turn 50, and then you can relax and just become, you know, do whatever. Doesn't say that, does it? Also, doesn't say, hey, don't worry about this until you turn 18. After 18, then you can start growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. It applies to Christians, right? That, to me, is very interesting because we tend to kind of write off, I think we hold our young people not as accountable as they should be in terms of growing to know Jesus, be more like Jesus, and maybe we hold older people too accountable and expect everything from them. But the idea is that we all are accountable to grow in our knowledge of grace and Jesus. That is to increase over time, to finish well. That command applies to all of us, to grow, to leave a positive legacy. Which brings us to, what do we do with all this? So what? So that's what it says. So what? What do we do? We call that application. At least I call that application. Most people call that application. Application is my take on it. This doesn't come out of Scripture. I think it's based on that. But this is how I respond to it. I'm sharing it with you. You have to choose your own application and see, okay, now you know something about this. Maybe you didn't know before or it's been revealed differently to you. What do you do with that knowledge? Here's what I'm doing with it. I had a coach, very, very influential coach, probably the most influential person on my life outside my parents. His, he never said goodbye. He always said, keep the faith. Say, mister, see you later. Keep the faith, Wesley. Yes, sir. Keep the faith. That's a good phrase. That fits this pretty well. Keep the faith. That's the override idea here. Keep the faith. Don't give up on things. The first application I have is I call it connections, and I think it actually influenced the other ones or subsets of connection. Be connected. And I like to look at that every day, and I wear one around my neck, and this is part of why. It's being connected vertically, the long part of the cross, the bigger part of the cross, reminds me that I need to be connected to God all the time. If I'm connected to God in prayer, if I'm connected to God in the Word, that is going to help me to finish well. That is going to continually mature me more and more. Because you can't read the Bible and just kind of shrug your shoulders at it and say, whatever. I don't know. I like that passage. I don't like that passage. It doesn't work that way. It's the Bible. It's all one thing. The more I'm in it, the more I'm in prayer, the more mature I am in Jesus. But there's this other part of the cross, the horizontal piece, and it's a little shorter. I don't know if that means it's less important. I take it that way. Go this way. Be connected to each other. Be 
Because God doesn't want us just to be smarter and closer to him. He also wants us to share with other people and be connected to others. And so there's this component of the cross that's to be sideways, to be connected with other people. And so then they have these other two sub-applications of being connected. And they think like it's two sides of the same coins. There's two coins. They both have a double side. The first one is the learn and teach coin. Always be learning. Always be teaching. And what I mean by this, don't, I'm teaching you right now. That's easy for me. I've got this responsibility. I get to do this. I love it. But that's not the kind of teaching I'm talking about. I'm talking about the one-on-one stuff, just at the coffee shop, with your family, around the dinner table, teaching and learning. Be willing to learn from somebody else and be willing to communicate to somebody else something that you know because God has given you things that he hasn't given to other people. Share it. I don't care if it's your work stuff that you're sharing with somebody or life stuff or... Again, college sports even. You can t- being connected with other people and learning from somebody and teaching somebody is fundamentally a great application that will keep you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. For me, it, it does. When I'm learning about something new or I'm learning from somebody, that's good for me. That keeps me kind of, I think, able to do stuff and to grow a little bit. It's part of our walk as Christians to learn and teach from one another. What I find is if you're learning things, Again, and this is, for me, my role here as an elder is I'm better at that. It makes me better at my job at the city. And being better at my job at the city makes me a better dad. And being a better dad makes me a better elder here. And it all kind of works together. If you're learning, it's going to apply to every part of your life. And if you're not learning, that's also going to apply to every part of your life. And then pretty soon you're going to be the grumpy old guy with the black cloud over your head at the coffee shop. You don't want to be that person. That's not a fun way to go through your life. The second one of this is the be inspired and inspire others coin. Now, the first one, be inspired. For me, the two biggest things we do here that get me excited at this church, besides Christmas Eve service, which I love, but it's hearing a testimony and seeing a baptism. When I hear people give their testimony... This is how I chose to follow Jesus Christ and what it meant to me and how I'm different. That jazzes me up in a way that nothing else does. Watching a baptism, to see somebody say, I'm making a public declaration of what I believe in and I'm following Jesus Christ. And they're out. That, to me, is, is the biggest celebrations we have. That's inspiring. And so I try to seek out people that are like that, that have that, or to listen to people's testimony. Even just in terms of pop culture stuff for entertainment, Things can be inspiring that have nothing to do with church stuff, but they deal with morals or being brave or being smart or wise or kind or whatever. Those are inspiring things. And I try to avoid things that aren't inspiring. Sports can be very inspiring. They weren't last night, but, I mean, that just happens. Okay, be inspired. Inspiring others might be a little tough thing. How do you go inspire others? And I don't know if I, I don't really have a good feel for that, other than be aware. Everybody watches everybody. We're in a small town, and we all know each other, and there's, we all do things. And I guarantee you, at some point during your day, you have made a significant contact with somebody that they're going to remember, and they were either uh, encouraged or not by what you did. And so our words have consequences. I just try to be aware that things that I say are listened to. My child, my friends, my neighbors, 
how I do things. I don't try to be inspiring to people. I try not to be an idiot. And maybe that's enough. You know, I don't want to be an idiot. That, that, you know, I don't want to be the guy that flies off the handle. When it says in the Bible to be slow to anger and quick to listen, that's pretty good advice I have found in life. That, 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 that's right up there with the most important things I can do and routinely screw that up. But try not to be. Be aware of that. Um, that's good. Higher things inspire. Eight things I can think of are pretty inspirational. Right out of the first chapter of Second Peter there. Those eight things, focus on those eight things. You can appropriate them, grab them, hold on to them. God's given them to us. I think if you're appropriating those eight things, you are going to finish well. You're going to leave a positive legacy behind. The kind of legacy that Simon Peter was worried about when he said, watch out for false teachers and watch out for outside attacks. Keep the faith. Hold the line. Finish well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this.